0: Hi, this is Balkan Devden, Senior Fellow at Macdonald Laurier Institute, and this is Pot Bless Canada. Today we'll be talking about Greek Turkish tensions in the Eastern Mediterranean with Professor Dimitri Triantofoulou from Kadras University in Istanbul. Dimitri is a professor of international relations and the director of the Center for International and European Studies at Kadras University in Istanbul, Turkey. He holds a BA in political science and history from Berkeley. And MA and PhD in international relations from Fletcher School at Tufts University. He has previously served in different capacities in a number of research and academic institutions, such as the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy in Athens, the EU Institute for Security Studies in Paris, the Hellenic Observatory at the London School of Economics, the University of Aegean in Rhodes, and and the International Center for Black Sea Studies in Athens. He also served as an advisor at the Hellenic Ministry for Foreign Affairs. He is the associate editor of Southeast European and Black Sea Studies, a member of the Greek-Turkish Forum, co-convener of the Commission on the Black Sea, a member of the advisory boards of the Black Sea Trust for Regional Cooperation, the International Institute for Peace in Vienna, and the Black Sea NGO Forum. He also is an advisor for the Corporate Social Responsibility Association of Turkey. His most recent applied research interests are Greek-Turkish relations, Black Sea security and politics, and the EU foreign and neighborhood policies. He's also very actively engaged in a number of non-formal education initiatives, promoting civic engagement and youth empowerment. He is also, if I dare say, a dear friend and one of the sharpest minds on this topic that we will talk about. So I'm very much looking forward to hear his insights. Dimitri, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you very much for inviting me to take part in this conversation.
0: So let me jump into into the topic and ask you about the two NATO allies seems to be having a conflict today that parties are worried that might escalate to military confrontation in the Eastern Mediterranean. Could you lay out sort of the the broader parameters of what what this conflict is about?
1: Sure. But I will start out with a personal story, which I think is indicative about the situation today. So I first came to Turkey in 2002. I was based in Paris at the time at the EU Institute uh, for Security Studies. In 2003, I was invited together with my Spanish colleague for a conference uh, held by the German Marshall Fund in Istanbul. And I remember uh, sitting in my office in Paris and my Spanish colleague Martin comes to my office and says, Dimitri, do we need a visa to go to Turkey? And I go, well, I don't need one, but you have to check. And he goes, well, you know, if you, you, the Greek, does not need one, I don't need one as a Spaniard. I said, Martin, it doesn't really work like that. He goes, ah, come on, come on. We don't need a visa. Okay. So Martin does not look into getting his visa. We land at, at the Turkey airport at the time. We go through passport control, and I let Martin go first. And the officer points to him, right? Go, go get your visa now. Martin is shocked. I tell Martin, don't worry. Just go get it. I'll be waiting for you, and we'll go through this together. So uh, Martin gets his visa, we go, we go through passport control, we pass through, and then, you know, there's like a column in front of us and there's a huge banner. And that banner has, half of it has a Greek flag and the other half has a Turkish flag. This was the time when Greece and Turkey were bidding together for the European Football Championship, which we did not get, but it was a joint bid. And Martin looks at me and he goes, you guys, meaning you Greeks and Turks, have been joking with us all these years. And I go, no, Martin, uh, just because our relations are not necessarily where they should be does not mean we don't talk to each other. And I think if we go full circle, how many years has it been since, till today and after this crisis, I can imagine the same thing happening again with another Greek colleague and Spanish or French or Canadian colleague wanting to come to Istanbul and thinking that, well, the Greeks probably have difficulty getting into Turkey. In a way, this is the crux of the conflict, uh, or of the tensions, in that for all these years, when there are peaks, there are some times when are, there are incidents, like '96 in and other times. But basically, the situation between the two countries has been relatively tame for all these years. And it has been tame because the two are NATO allies, which means that NATO is, provides sort of a mechanism for, for reducing tensions. Turkey at the time had entered the path to, for accession, joining the EU. And Greek-Turkish rapprochement, which started in 1999, was preconditioned on Turkey's EU bid. And, and so basically, we've had about 20 years of relatively good relations, albeit tension. But relatively good relations mean more people-to-people contact, growing trade relations, and cooperation in a number of sectors. But it did not necessarily mean and has not meant that key outstanding differences between the two countries have actually been resolved. This has been the oddest of summers because usually, given the relations between Greece and Turkey, usually sometime in the spring, both sides are scrambling to contact each other to ensure that during the summer months, which are months where both countries get hordes of tourists and, and their dollars or euros and uh, to come to, to to you know help their economies, usually they, there's a moratorium uh, placed over trying not to raise tensions and then tensions again, In uh, bec- things become more problematic in, in the winter months. Well, this summer, tourism is down, COVID is in, and of course, we've had a summer full of tension, which is interesting in itself. But the fact that we've always gone through these cycles of moratoria is interesting. It's telling about the nature of the relationship. A- and what is also telling is that this rapprochement process, which uh, both countries have tried to work on, and really worked at the beginning on, on getting civil societies of the two countries to interact with each other. A stress, as I said, on investments and, and bilateral trade. And also, 10 years into the process, by 2010, uh, this was upgraded to this high level political council meetings between the two countries where half the ministries of each government meet and sign a number of deals. It has nevertheless not necessarily been set on any sound foundation it's political. It's totally political. It's political goodwill by successive governments on both sides saying, okay, we need to do this. Yes, there are the mechanisms uh, of NATO and the EU, but that's it. It's not like the Franco-German relationship, which has ended up after 80 years or so of of wars, where three times during an 80-year period, German forces entered and conquered Paris, that at some stage in 1963, France and Germany signed the Treaty, which basically brought an end to their differences. And not only that, but in the treaty clearly defined what their obligations are, that is, to ensure that there will be no more differences between the two. So the Greek-Turkish process, rapprochement process, it has been a political one. And basically, as we see, it was based on sand and with the current tension has quickly faltered. Now, Why are we where we are today? It's interesting. Why haven't we continued on the path that we've continued over the last few years and somehow controlled emotions and intentions?
0: Why does it come back today?
1: I think there are a number of factors, but I think more than anything, if we take away the rhetoric, if we take away the ambitions of leaders, if we take away what is happening, a lot of it has to do with what's happening, I think, in Turkey in particular, there's still how a capital, Ankara or Athens, interpret both regional dynamics and global dynamics, and therefore each capital, together with a foreign policy establishment, a defense establishment, the political elites, try to ensure the security of their country. The doctrine of self-help comes there, uh, one can include on this, forward defense notions and other notions. I mean, obviously, in a way, I, I would tend to think that Ankara, before anybody else, judged, understood that there's a security void somewhere in the region. And and that security void, I think one can interpret in many ways, but I would tend to think at least in the Mediterranean, in particular in the Eastern Mediterranean region, has to do with the fact that, that the one country that has been keeping the system together, the way it has evolved since the end of the Second World War fundamentally, with its multilateral institutions uh, of global reach and then the other ones of regional reach. Um, Uh, that one country is doubting what role it wants to have. Uh, It's in, it's not in. It's pivoting towards Asia, but it's also interested in Europe. And then in different degrees, there's been change. And actually, this has been enhanced by the the, the Trump administration. And therefore, the security vacuum that was emerging, Ankara sought to capitalize on it.
0: An opportunity, basically, to advance, perhaps, what they see as as, as Turkey's uh, national interest, given given that the Americans are basically missing in action, almost.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 you know, fundamentally, the two countries have something in common. They've always been on the margin. They're called flank states. This is what they are in, you know, NATO lingo. This is how the Greeks feel when it comes to talking about the rest of Europe. We, Greeks always talk about Europe as if they don't belong to it. I mean, geography has put them on the margin, on the sidelines, and therefore they have both countries have a very enhanced concept of what their security should be and what the security concerns should be. And much so, even more Turkey, even more so Turkey, that has a neighborhood which is not necessarily the one that most would want to have. And so I think Ankara interpreted the security vacuum and said, well, if I am fundamentally on my own, what do I do to protect and defend my interests? And I think there's consensus across the board in that sense, in that in, in Turkey, about that perception that something needs to be done. And so Ankara, I think, tried to push things towards maybe a solution. I don't know if that's the right word, but but try to to change the dynamics to ensure that its security, the way it perceives it, is somehow protected and enhanced.
0: It looks like, to me, it looks like it's uh, the, the primary sort of driver is that Turkey wants a seat in the table and felt like Ankara is being excluded in, in whatever uh, sort of regional groupings are going on within, within uh, Eastern Mediterranean. So in that sense, this seems to be not, maybe not necessarily a solution, but a start of a sort of a grand bargain, perhaps. Can you perhaps just lay out what the sort of specific disagreements right now? That To me, it looks like there are two or three separate overlapping sort of disagreements, one to do with the continental shelf and then the EEZs. The other one with regards to the natural resources. And then there is also one that includes the Cyprus problem. So that seems to be an overlapping series of tensions and disagreements that is right now going on. Most of them are have been going on for a while, but they are sort of rekindled and
1: brought forward. It's the three that you mentioned, and I think there's a fourth one that's interlinked, which is also territorial waters, which has to do with the Aegean Sea, where According to the law of the sea convention, uh, Montego Bay Convention of 1982, a country can extend its territorial waters up to 12 nautical miles. Right now they're at six, and it's something that Greece has not done. But that that also has to do with the particular circumstances of of the Aegean Sea. Um, so all all of them come together. Even though the focus right now is on the Eastern Mediterranean, where it is has to do with the continental shelf, and and how much continental shelf islands have. And by extension, uh, we've discovered over the last few years the exclusive economic zone, which has to do with the exploitation of its deep seabed, whether it's in terms of hydrocarbons, whether it's fisheries. Not only that, I mean, also if one looks at the different sort of resources, energy, renewables, and so on, one needs an exclusive economic zone to be able to, to produce wind energy and other things. So basically, it seems, because it's very interesting from a Greek perspective, to say, why all of a sudden did this happen? We know the issues are there. And the fact is that Greece has not tried to extend its territorial waters in the Aegean to 12 miles, Nautical miles. And it has nothing to do with the casus belli that Turkish parliament issued in 1995 and is now being repeated by both the Turkish foreign minister and the vice president of the government. If you do this, it's an act of war. It has nothing to do with that per se. It has to do with the fact that in particular, Given today's context, where uh, it's at six nautical miles, where Greece, because of the of its geography and the, its various islands, 43% of the territorial waters actually Greek waters, 7.1% are Turkish waters, and about 49% are international waters, right, for safe passage of navigation. And if they were to go to 12 nautical miles, because I think in the debate, everyone is talking about maximalist positions, it's up to 12. It does not mean that a country would go to 12 nautical miles but if we were to go to 12 then it changes totally the 43% for Greece becomes 72% 7.1% for Turkey becomes 8% and the 49% of international waters become only 19 and with certain parts that there is no international uh, waters at all and so this has been the concern for Greece for not extending its territorial waters because it's not just Greece and Turkey but it's international shipping which means Other countries have a say, be it the Black Sea states that go through the straits and go into the Aegean, the Americans, the French and everybody else. So I think the issue there is to try to find, if there's a delimitation agreement, find the extent of what Greece can claim would be the extension of its territorial waters.
0: This has been like 25 years or even more sort of concerns that has always been there, same goes with the territorial waters, and to me, it looks like with the energy, it's it's interesting because, I mean, these are all explorations and stuff like that. We don't know whether those could be exploitable or sellable or it's going to be economically feasible. So the whole tension looks like over something that is not even, we're not even sure it is it is viable to to exploit or, or use. So this is a series of tensions that has been there for 25, 30 years. And then there is this hope of some kind of hydrocarbon Resources which may or may not be exploited and, and sold, but all, we have all this, you know, storm right now. So, what 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 seems to be the driving the thing, particularly with regards to Ankara? Because I think there is there's a lot of domestic politics.
1: I mean, ab- apart from the domestic politics, I think we both know it how interrelated the modern histories of both countries are in, in relation to the other, and I think this is something that many. Non Greeks and non Turks do not understand. There's, it's something guttural. It's something inside, which means it causes a reaction. And it's a way I think Turks learn their history, and it's a way the Greeks learn their history. And this has an impact. Obviously, you can overcome it. Then we you know we focus on the fact. Oh my goodness! You know, many of our norms are the same. Our mores are the same. The way we interact with our families, it's the same. We have so much in common. But beyond that, we also know that. The founding of modern Turkey for the Greeks meant a significant loss of territory or, or even the vision of what Greece should be, and vice versa. so there's always been this interaction. We can see this coming out even this during this hot summer if one thinks of everything that's being celebrated uh, on Turkey's side has to do in a way a Greek military loss throughout the you know in the early nine almost a hundred years ago. So I think this is something that all of a sudden when you have Ankara come out and start exploring because, you know, here when we go to the Eastern Mediterranean, it's about exploring for oil or gas in contested zones, in contested in that they have not been demarcated yet, right? Because the Greek argument is all the islands have, and according to international law, it it seems to be the case, have a continental shelf and by extension, exclusive economic zone. It could go, up to 200 nautical miles, 12 miles for the continental shelf and 200 for the exclusive economic zone. But the Turkish argument is and has shifted saying, well, yes, but they don't, islands do not have the same rights as the mainlands of Greece or Turkey. And then some of the islands are too small to actually be significant and so on and so forth.
0: Essentially different arguments, right? Some you can say they're just too small, too close. So that's a different story. But then going saying that, while this should apply to, I don't know, Rodos or, or, or Crete is also <laughs> is also like very weird.
1: It is, but but the basic issue is that Turkey has not ratified the Law of the Sea Convention, even though it applies it where it wants to. So, for example, it has extended territorial waters in the Black Sea region to 12 nautical miles. Of course, there it can say, but there were no differences, and therefore one can do it. But it has done that, and in its argumentation, it uses cases that were disputed in front of uh, of the court to support its arguments. Plus, also, Turkey does not accept the, the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. And so this complicates the way one can resolve these issues, because the, the Greek perspective point has been that we, we can sit down and talk, and we are only talking about the issues that have to deal with the delimitation of, of the continental shelf and, and the exclusive economic zone. And if we cannot find a solution to this in terms, in terms of bilateral negotiations, then we have to agree on the parameters of going to the Court of Justice or some other internationally mutually acceptable arbitration. And the problem here is that Turkey is not necessarily willing to do that. So it's come out to, well, push-pull factors. Okay, let's see if I can, at least from Athens' perspective, is if I put out my my navy in the Eastern Mediterranean, put out my exploration ship because we're all learning that two types of vessels are those that that actually explore for gas, and then there are others that drill. Here we're talking about exploration to see if there is gas in particular areas, in particular in continental shelf that's actually disputed because both sides claim it. And then let's sign an agreement uh, with the government in Tripoli, in Libya, to force Greece's hand and try to make this something that is an internationally accepted agreement. And so the tension has been that. And it has forced a very interesting... So, so the, the first thing is that while both sides over the years, over the decades, as I said, even though there were periodic tensions, no one really sat down, neither Ankara nor Athens sat down to actually resolve this or to try to bring these two issues to a resolution, to force a resolution, maybe knowing that this might lead to more tension than necessary. Now it seems, as I said from at the beginning, By interpreting the regional environment and the security void, Ankara says, well, I have to find another way to make my case because the dynamics might change. And right now, there's an opportunity for me to make my case. And so what this has led has been to a Greek reaction. It's a very interesting Greek reaction, which if we just focus on the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, we tend to lose sight of what the full reaction has been. Greece sat down and has a delimitation deal with Italy. Italy is in the Ionian Sea. Turkey has no no place there. But the interesting thing is that the delimitation deal, which was signed this summer with Italy, very clearly in order to get to an agreement with the Italians. It's something that was pending since 1977. It, Italy is a friendly country. We've never really had conflict, but but we, we could not never get an agreement. But in order to get the agreement, it was very interesting how for some of the islands in the Ionian Sea, Greece accepted that they had a limit, more a smaller continental shelf than other islands have. And, and of course, for the sea that it lost, it was compensated in other parts of the agreement by the Italians. So that's one thing. So it's, it's an understanding, it's, it's a message to Ankara, I think, saying, listen, let's sit down, we can find a solution, because we are willing to accept certain principles. And then it, it also signs it's limited delimitation deal with Egypt. And the interesting thing about the deal with Egypt is that if, when Greece started, I think in two thousand and nine, to reach out to the Egyptians, the Egyptians have always been very wary of signing a delimitation agreement with Greece without Turkish consent, because of the dy- wider dynamics in the region. But the fact that they were willing this time to sign, again, one has to interpret this agreement. It's it's limited because it goes up to the point where it touches Turkish claims, and therefore, according to the international law. That all the parties had to sit down and delimit the thing, uh, the the area uh, properly, but also the fact that Egypt accepted that islands have continental shelves was interesting because it's something they have not accepted up to now. Sending a message to Ankara also that in some parts Greece accepted partially, in some parts partially because it's a partial agreement was another message that listen, even countries that for so long have not been willing or have not been able to find an agreement. There is a solution if you do this by respecting international law and sitting down and negotiating. And I think this the, this argument, this message, maybe I, I'm sure Ankara might be aware of it, but it has not necessarily come out because the Greek position is I am being forced right now to start delimitating my waters through legally binding agreements because of the, the Turkey-Libya uh, delimitation deal, which impinges upon what I think is some of my sovereign rights. But I am also sending a message that what I am doing is that I am willing on certain parts when it comes to islands and continental shelves, Not, I'm not accepting that they do not, they do not have a continental shelf, but I am accepting the fact upon agreement that some of them might have a more limited continental shelf than others, right? This is actually a political
0: a negotiation, right? Absolutely. This has to be, and given the you know, peculiarities of whatever... you're dealing with, it's not going to be open and close legal arguments, but sitting down and giving back and forth in a give and take deals that can be reached. And that's, I think, what the the message um, sort of tried to
1: to get there. Absolutely. And in the meantime, we also know that since 2002, there have been 63 rounds of what are called exploratory talks between the two foreign ministries, which have been very hush-hush in terms that very little has actually leaked about why these high-ranking diplomats slash negotiators, representatives of both foreign ministries, have been talking behind closed doors, which is, and one is pretty certain, and now now with crisis, more things are coming out. in The press, I'm sure the diplomats on both sides have the parameters of a deal, right? They're not the ones that are going to close it. It's going to be the political elite. But the parameters are there. And right now, of course, this talk stopped in 2016 because in 2016 we had the coup attempt in Turkey. And uh, I think in the whole uh, considerations post-coup, who is with whom and whatever, for some reason this talk stopped. And now we're trying to get back to at least that table, the table where the the high-ranking diplomats from both sides sit down again and restart the exploratory talks.
0: What are the hopes for that?
1: Well, this is, this is where we are right now, right? Right now, we're trying to find an attempt at de-escalation. And this is the difficult thing. The de-escalation is difficult because it's how each side sees de-escalation. I think uh, neither side wants to be seen that they've taken a step back first under pressure from the other. And and the, the passions that 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 you, you
0: talk about, I think, is fundamental in 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 both Turkish and Greek sort of national mythology or the or the identity creation. The place both both place makes it very hard to de escalate once you get those passions uh, running high.
1: Absolutely, and I and I think there's been a tactical mistake I think by Ankara earlier this year, and this had to do with uh, this attempt to force or to you know allow refugees and migrants to cross the land border into Greece which was an organized attempt and this was very interesting because it somehow there again it was a wake up call for the greeks saying no we're not going to allow this but the repercussions of that were there i think in greece a new sort of patriotism emerged and i'm not talking about nationalism patriotism in that we can we have to stand tough we cannot accept this and and you see now with the whatever it is, gunboat diplomacy, or whatever one can call it in the Eastern Mediterranean, where you have the exploratory ship accompanied by four or five navy ships, and the, the Greeks have 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 approached this, I think, very differently than in the past. And I think this has surprised Ankara. If your ships are out, our ships are out as well. And and I think this is a continuation of what happened in February and March on the land border. And and I think this tactical mistake of trying to flood the border has led the Greek side to say, wait, wait a second. We're willing to talk, but it cannot be under duress. And the only way is, I mean... fit for
0: tat, basically.
1: fit for tat up to a point, because the Greek argument is, you know, you are violating my sovereign rights because it's not sovereignty there per se. And so we are at a stage right now of trying to find, I mean, it's, I think it's choreography, it's theatrics, trying to find the right way to de-escalate. And in particular, I think, for, for uh, the Turkish government not to lose face. The Greek government as well. But in, in the Greek case, I think things are a bit clearer. And then to basically go back to the table, which is the exploratory talks, maybe even CBMs, because there are a number of CBMs between the two sides that over the 20 years of the rapprochement process were instigated. And you, you might need to to reopen those channels of communication, whether it's political CBMs or military CBMs. And then, to see, and this is the next step is do we go back to trying to you know de escalate and wait for you know the the wind to go from the sails and relax, or are we going if we do this and do not try to deal and resolve with the real differences, whether tomorrow this will come back again to hurt us, and therefore, I really think this is where we might be. In front of fundamentally a paradigm shift, again, it's a paradigmatic shifting uh, shifting moment in the sense that this might be the opportunity to sit down and settle this, right? Otherwise, it might also lead to a total break, not only between the two countries, but also between Turkey and the European Union. Because what has happened, because, you know, tactically, there have been two or three things that have happened. I mean, that thing in the border has to do with Greece and Turkey. The incident in, of the Libyan sea between the French frigate and, and the Turkish, that woke the French up. Tactical mistake. Because the French, who might have come late again in seeing what Ankara was seeing, a security void which somehow needs to be filled. And and therefore the French uh, said, "Okay, I will not allow anyone but by ourselves and the Americans to have the first say in, in the Mediterranean." Have reacted forcefully, and therefore you see how French France has come in on multiple fronts, right? Not only in taking Greece aside on the East Med issue and trying to mobilize other European countries to take uh, Greece aside, but the way Macron reacted by being the first foreign leader the day after the the Beirut explosion. And going there again, I mean, it seems to be a reactive strategy and an acceptance that the world might be fundamentally changing, right? And then the third issue is by by making this also, because by forcing the Europeans to take side, in a way, you are internationalizing the issue. And what has happened now is that it's not just that, you know, the quixotic Greeks periodically waving their arms and saying, oh my goodness, the the Turks are threatening us again, and nobody really minding. Now, by having the French involved, by having the Germans involved and others, everything that comes out of Ankara, so whether it's the threat of war, that acquires a different dimension. Because then people say, wait a second, here you are now violating Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, which is against the threat of war. Here, there's a violation of Article 1 of the Washington Treaty, the NATO Treaty, which is, again, it's not only about going to war, it's against the threat of war between two NATO member states, right? So this internationalization of the issue has created all these pressures, which makes de-escalation even more difficult.
0: I think there is there are two things as well. One is, I mean, the, the dangers with brinkmanship, right? Sometimes you fall off the brink, and I think with missteps, that's, that's always a possibility. But the second... Is the fact that, like what we told in the, in the beginning, that the Americans are missing in action, because I mean, previously it was really, I mean, remembering you know, back 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 to Cardass crisis exactly. in 96, 97, it's it's, it's basically the sort of American pressure and intervention in the essence to 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 contain contain the issue. And this time they're they're nowhere to be seen. And I think that's one of the biggest sort of challenges today to to be able to to, to contain this.
1: I agree. I agree. On the other hand, just like I see possible opportunity, I think if more rational and clear-sighted minds prevail between Greece and Turkey to actually try to to put an end to these things with a longer-term deal. Likewise, because you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation how one can find a formula where all the states in the region equitably or uh, there's a mechanism for sharing the resources, if they are there, I see also the eventuality, again, if more rational minds prevail, of the development of a new sort of security community in the region, where France, Turkey, uh, Greece, Cyprus, uh, Israel, Egypt, and other states from the region all take create mechanisms of what what is a security community. In a way, that's what it is. You create mechanisms to ensure that somehow conflicts are minimized. And through that, just like you have the East Med Gas Forum, which Turkey is not a part of, but the, the countries involved in it are saying that the Turks can come in. I'm sure they can find a formula. The, the problem is there is Cyprus for Turkey because it does not recognize it, right? So that creates an issue. But I mean, one can see the elements. If one, if one is to avoid this sort of brinkmanship and gunboat diplomacy again, which things can go wrong because after all, I, I always say this, it's boys with very expensive guns and under tension. And whether you yes. are you are a pilot yes. or you are someone on a, on a frigate or corvette or any ship, you know, that's there ready at the trigger, and you press it because you panic, it's a mistake, things can go wrong, all hell can break loose. So if you don't want to get back to this, don't you have basically the finding, the beginning of talking about a new sort of security community in the region? Because fundamentally, I don't think any of the states want war. I don't think in this case, neither the Greek government nor the Turkish government want to go to war. And and none of the other states. So that's why I'm also saying that this conflict could potentially be the beginning of a paradigm shift.
0: In a way, what still and call community played for the Franco-German relations, natural gas could actually, you know, have the potential to play a similar role in the Mediterranean Mediterranean in these in disparate uh, group of countries.
1: But you have to have a resolution to these uh, differences. And again, the difference here is the Greek side, they cannot be under duress. We will never accept it and it also has to follow certain principles and the law of the sea which by the way it's interesting how this issue keeps coming up if one looks for example at the turkey eu negotiation process and the different the, the negotiating chapters you take chapter 13 chapter 13 is about fisheries and in the eu context fisheries are negotiated by brussels countries have given brussels the right to negotiate a, a, well a country that joins has to ratify the law of the sea convention because this is it's it's just like it's just like the death penalty you cannot you ca, you cannot support the death penalty right so the us tomorrow if it it met all the criteria cannot join because of because of the death penalty in certain in certain states turkey can because it has no death penalty but if you look at chapter 13 it's it's part of the negotiating framework this is a thing that's being negotiated it it means you have to recognize a convention because all the eu member states have recognized a convention so i still think that there are ways, I would like to think rationally, that there are ways of resolving these disputes within applicable frameworks, which actually make sense for you know whether one sees this from the perspective of Athens, sitting in Athens and watching Turkey, or from the perspective of Ankara, sitting in Ankara and trying to figure out how to deal with the Greeks and the rest. But what happens in this case is that it's not just the ships at sea standing off each other. It's the rhetoric that's also involved, right? We have this constant rhetoric, which there again, this is uh, it doesn't sit well with the Greeks. Some of the Greek rhetoric, uh, which I do not think is that intense, does not sit well with the Turks. And then that rhetoric is not only addressed to the Greeks; it's addressed to the French because you link them to your uh, as a colonial power and the Turkish War of Independence a hundred years ago. It
0: creates pack dependencies, right,
1: it, which it will be hard to
0: walk back. And I think. That's
1: the problem. I, I, think, I think that's part of the problem. So there has to be a way. So the de-escalation does not only have to be a military de-escalation. Somehow it has to be rhetorical. And, and so in that sense, the, the key lies in Ankara. In a sense, I mean, the ability of the government, of uh, Turkey's president, to change course. And again, here, the issue is, can he? I mean, in all his years in power, he has shown this tremendous ability that he can, because he's a politician above par. Right? It's one of these politicians, political figures that emerges in a country once every 50 years or so. Right, And so he has been able to deflect his opponents. He has been able to form coalitions, which then, you know, they they, they fell into me. He did not feel like he needed them anymore. and He formed coalitions with other groups. So he has been able to do this. Will he be able, in a way, to change the discourse? Because after all, he's still a political leader that needs to get elected. It's a qu- issue of legitimacy, right? And it's about finding the right mix to be able to get that 50%, which he created.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, he, he boxed himself with that, right? So,
1: <laughs> But can he find the right mix so that he can maybe escape from the clutches of this very hyper-nationalistic rhetoric, which is having a tremendous impact on policymaking and his country's policymaking, right? And I think that is why also In this dispute between uh, what we see, the tension between Greece and Turkey, there's a wider discussion taking place. And this is where the Germans are coming in, which is if the accession process is stopped, it's stalled, de facto it's there, but de jure it's not really advanced, or de jure is there, but de facto does not exist, what else can replace it? And what one can hear and what the Germans want, and many Europeans are talking about, and, and many in Greece, is some sort of grand package which includes. Maybe a continuation of the refugee migration deal, which means, therefore, we, the carrots are more financial resources and then Turkey monitors the refugees and the migrants so they don't come to European shores. An updated, not that the, not that the, this is the correct thing to do, right? Because we are securitizing the refugee issue as opposed to trying to figure out how to integrate them. I mean, but that's where we are right now, about upgrading the customs union, which both sides need. Maybe finding a way around the uh, the blockages in the visa liberalisation issue, which would be a tremendous victory for the Turkish president, saying, "Okay, I did not get the country in the EU, but you, you Turkish citizens, can travel everywhere in Europe." I mean, I think it's a great selling point, and this would also help a deal with Europe. Would also help in changing the economic climate, investment climate, and so on. A grand bargain.
0: Basically,
1: yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. But what the Greeks are saying is, in this and and the Cypriots for that matter, in this grand bargain, there still have to be certain rules of engagement and good neighborly relations. And I think the Greek reaction to the incidents on the Greek-Turkish land border and now also is to ensure also that in this grand bargain, some of these things that are part of the accession process will have to be included. Because, and, and that's why I'm saying, yes, they need to be included, but also maybe the, this is the opportunity to figure out how to delimitate and move forward, and so that we don't have to worry. Uh, Greeks do not have to feel that they're under threat by the Turks, and Turks do not have to feel that the Greeks are out, uh, you know, these uh, whatever uh, uh, impressions Turks might have of Greeks, because this is affecting this is affecting relations at all levels. And, and, you know, the worst thing also, given that we are here September uh, 2020, is that is COVID. COVID is interesting, too. COVID has totally stopped the people-to-people interactions. COVID has stopped access of Turks that want to get away for a bit to come to the Greek islands or, or you know, get the visa to the Greek mainland. I know so many of my Turkish friends that say, I, we cannot even do this anymore. Right. And vice versa of Greece. Because it was, it was
0: something very you, part of the summer thing. You know, you go, you, you cross to the islands and, you know, have good food and enjoy and relax. and so but, you, but it's trust building. That's just also. over.
1: It's, it's a level of trust building exactly. between societies. And we don't have this at all now because there's no interaction. And and, and even though polls, uh, because there have been some polls in both countries, I think Metropole had a poll, uh, was it a week ago in Turkey? suggesting that 59 point something percent, 60 percent of the Turkish public want a diplomatic solution, while a a smaller percentage uh, want ready for military one. And there was a poll in Tanea, which is a leading uh, Greek newspaper on Saturday, which suggested that 70 percent of the Greeks want a diplomatic solution. So the numbers are there still. But can you keep this? Can you maintain this when there's no interaction?
0: Yeah, that's going to be hard. Let me wrap up with asking you what we generally ask our guests, and this is sort of the Canadian angle. If you have a chance to sort of sit down and, and talk with uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and if you have to tell, tell one thing to him about about this conflict and whether you know Canada should be concerned, and if yes, why, what would you what would you tell him?
1: Well, I mean, it, it has to do, I think, with what I, I call strategic void. But the strategic void basically means in in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Mediterranean as a whole, uh, it means that the multilateral liberal order has a problem. And uh, it's happening in that region, which uh, is far from Canada, but it's a, it should be a concern for everybody. And I think all countries, especially big countries like Canada, uh, need to be involved in uh, reshaping, a, its rules have to be rewritten, rewriting them, but ensuring that some sort of order with normative elements is out there uh, to replace uh, the order that seems to be on its way out. Because otherwise, you know, we we focus today on on the Eastern Mediterranean and Greek-Turkish tensions, but uh, how many of these tensions are occurring right now under different pretexts in different parts of the world? And I think these have multiplied, and I think this should be a concern for everybody, because this has an impact directly on on one's uh, trade relations, uh, political relations, and ultimately, whether, you know, uh, the mechanisms we have in place, the institutions, whether the UN can continue doing its job and being effective to the degree that it is effective, and other regional institutions. So, you know, what's happening in the Eastern Med has a direct impact. First of all, Canada is involved as well, given the fact that these are two NATO member states. So there's obviously something to consider there. But I think more than anything, the vacuum that's been created because of the U.S.'s ambivalence about its role is having an impact all across the board. And I think this is is something that uh, the Canadian leader uh, should be looking at and being concerned.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Amit. This has been a, a great chat. And thank you for taking the time and sharing with us and with our listeners what is going on in the Eastern Mediterranean. Thanks for, for being part of it.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much for the opportunity.